Anyone want to guess how many times it took to get that strike? <laughs> it was not in one take, let's just put it that way. <clears throat> Super fun. Hey, we got about six weeks till the Normandy project is due, and so May 28th is when uh, $250,000 is due. And that's not just a goal. If we don't get the 250, we lose the whole contract. And so we're at about 50,000. And so those of you praying and just looking to give, so that's about where we're at. So excited to see what God does. All right, you guys ready? Today I want to talk to you about the most prosperous person who ever lived. Any guesses who that might be? <laughs> yeah, there we're in church. That's always a safe answer. Yes, it is Jesus. It's like the old joke. The person in the Sunday school is like. And the teacher said, what is a brown furry and uh, runs around trees collecting nuts? And the guy's like, it sounds like a squirrel, but since we're in church, it must be Jesus. And so um, the answer is actually Jesus in this one. So that one's safe. So uh, Jesus, he, he lived in a different realm. And so what I want to do today is I want to just kind of blow up exactly the realm that he lived in, why he was prosperous in every situation, because it goes beyond finances. Finances is one part of it. And uh, I want to kind of see how we can invite ourselves, how he is inviting us into that thing. So um, when the psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he's not just writing like a beautiful poem. He's actually pulling back the curtain on reality and showing you and inviting you into an experience where you can live a life without lack. I want you to get that phrase in your heart, a life without lack. No matter what situation you're in, you can live a life without lack. So let's look at the message of Jesus. Have you ever noticed um, what, the, what the good news that Jesus preached was? I think a lot of people think that Jesus said, um, I am now announcing the minimal entrance requirements to heaven. Repeat this prayer after me, and you will go to heaven when you die. How many realize that's not the message that he came to preach? And yet if you, if you go to a lot of churches, you'd probably think that's actually the message that he preached. And so there's kind of a parable that I like to do about this. It's from a deeply theological movie called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Lots of wonderful truths in this movie. And there's a scene that really expresses what I think a lot of people think the gospel is. Um, there's, this, uh, the, there's King Arthur and his knights, and they're on this quest for the Holy Grail. And in order to find the Holy Grail, they have to cross this bridge, but there's this bridge keeper. And you have to get past him, and he asks you three questions. If you get the questions right, you're allowed to cross. If you get the questions wrong, you're cast into the abyss. And so if we could uh, roll the video here. Ask me the questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Fine. Off you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's easy! Ask me the questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What is your name? Sir Robin of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the capital of Assyria? I don't know that. Stop. What is your name? Sir Galahad of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the grail. What 
Is your favorite color blue? No. <laughs> Stop! What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britons. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? What do you mean? An African or European swallow? Huh? I, I don't know that. Every head bow, every eye closed, no one looking around. <clears throat> Many people have reduced the gospel to this, that when you get to heaven, there's going to be these pearly gates, and someone's going to be standing at the gates, and the gospel is the secret answer to the question that you need to have correct in order to get into heaven. The problem is nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus paint a picture of this as his message. Here's Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What on earth does that mean? Well, let's take a look at that. Um, Dallas Willard has a paraphrase of this in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I love his paraphrase. And if it comes up here, we're going to read it together. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. And it goes a little something like this. Oh, here we go. All right. Let's read this together. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, and the kingdom of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable opportunity. This is Jesus' gospel. Jesus came announcing that there's this amazing realm. See, the kingdom of God has always existed. That's, that's you know, from, it's, Daniel says it's from everlasting to everlasting. What was new is now that normal people like you and me could get our way into it. Jesus presents himself. He is the door into this completely new reality called the kingdom of God. And he paints this picture of this kingdom as being governed by a father who is infinitely powerful, relentlessly kind, and unceasingly good. And it's interesting. Have you ever thought about why did Jesus reveal himself in the Hebrew culture? Like, why didn't he do it to, like, Norwegians or, like, the Chinese or, like, Anglo-Saxons? Have you guys ever, like, wondered things like this? I think it might go something like this. The Hebrews, they knew how to show emotion. Like, they knew how to let it all hang out. Uh, when they had a funeral, boy, did they ever have a funeral. They would hire mourners. They would wrap themselves in black. They would put ashes on their hair. They would be wailing out loud. Everyone knew that they were sad. The word for rejoice in Hebrew, it means to leap in the air and spin around. I mean, they never kept any of their emotions inside. God wanted us to know the infinity of his joy. And Jesus said, that's what the Father's like over this kingdom. He is extreme in his joy over you. He tells us um, a parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son. And I think if the, prodigal son had, uh, if the prodigal father had been British, it would have been a completely different story. The boy would have come home, he'd have been like, um, <laughs> good day, old chap, good to have you back. I mean, it would have been something like that. It just would have, the, the Brits, they're just not emotional. But you see this picture of the father, and it says he's staring off into the horizon, and he's been looking for that silhouette for years. And all of a sudden, he sees, and he's like, you know, there's no other boy that has that silhouette. No one has that walk. And he runs to him and he says, my boy, my boy. And he says he showers him with kisses. Says he falls on his neck and gives him a bear hug. Are you seeing? He's saying this is what God is like. Get the robe. Get the sandals. Get the ring. Kill the fatted calf. We have to have a huge party. My boy has come home. And he says, he says this is what the kingdom of God is like. Anytime one lost sinner comes home, the angels and all of heaven throw a huge party. I want you to get this picture here, is when you got born again, there was a day when there was a party in heaven, and the banner's name over the table was your name. 
And all of heaven rejoiced, and they partied, and they danced and twirled and spun around and said, my boy, my girl. And Jesus begins to give us pictures of, this is what this invisible realm is like. I've come to let you in on the secret. I'm the door to this whole realm. What I love about the kingdom of God is um, anybody can just blunder their way in. Jesus begins, to, he begins announcing this. He says things like, hey, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, those who are broken. Like all the people, nobody thinks this group is blessed. They're not blessed because of their condition, blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You guys understand, he's not saying you got to be broken, you got to cry all the time, you got to be persecuted, you have to have everyone hate you in order to get in the kingdom. He's saying, no, even these people, the people that nobody thinks, I mean, it looks like a Benny Hinn crusade, a whole bunch of need. These people are coming desperate. He's saying, you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world because now you have access into this realm that's governed by a happy father and you can live in a power that's not your own. The good news is in order to get into this kingdom, you don't have to, you don't have to become someone who you are not. You can start where you're at today. Because understand, you don't have to become amazing. You don't have to go through all these hoops. You can actually step into this invisible realm right where you're at. That's the good news. It's right for you, right where you are and right who you are. I had a friend in a seminary named Albert, and he was from Burkina Faso. And of course, the, he was from the capital city of Burkina Faso, which is Wagadougou. Come on. That's the only time anyone has ever got that right. So... God bless you, woman. You get, you get the gold star. She, that is the keys to the kingdom right there. You, you have it. And so he taught, so the, the way he grew up, we would consider backward by many of us. I'm not sure I'm going to get over that one. <laughs> the way he grew up, so they grew up without electricity in the village. And he said he remembers the day when the power company came to their village. And I want to you to imagine the announcements of the power company as if it were the announcement of the gospel. You ready for this? The time has come. You've been living in the dark long enough. Electrical power in your homes is available now. Reconsider your way of life. Leave it behind. Adapt some new technology that will allow you to access this new power source and live in a new way. Your lives will never be the same again. Jesus is saying, Rethink your life in light of this marvelous opportunity. There is now a power available to you through the person of Jesus called the kingdom of God in which you will prosper in every area of your life. Notice I didn't say that you will have all of your problems will be removed and it's going to be easy. No matter what you face, Romans 5 says you can reign like a king. You will have authority in that thing. Charismatics are deliverance crazy. God, get me out of this problem. God, get this, move this person away from my work. God, get this person out of my life. See, the thing is, is if God removed every bit of darkness from your life, then you'd still be afraid of the dark next time it came. He's actually making you the kind of person who can have authority over darkness, so whenever you meet it, you rule over it. That's the good news. And I'm not just talking about adapting some new behavior, adapting some new culture, adapting some new values. Um, I'm talking about you're actually living from a different kind of power. It's no longer self-power, self-effort. It's his effort flowing with your cooperation, and it produces something miraculous. Many people think that Jesus came to get you into heaven when you die, but the news is much better than that. He actually came to get you into heaven before you die. 
He wants you to live in the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God. John calls it eternal life. It's all the same picture. It's a realm that has invaded earth, and you can live in it if you want to. Once you get that idea, you begin to see this throughout all scriptures. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's interesting. Um, the Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. Sometimes you see the one word is Elohim. That just means God. Everyone had their own Elohim. But the name of the Hebrews Elohim was Yahweh. And it means I am that I am. You and I can never say I am. Pop, I tried to say it. I am that I am. And that's all that I am, right? When he said, I am that I am, he means, I don't need anyone's, ex- anyone's help, anyone's assistance. I existed. I've never, I've never began. I ne- will never have an ending. God is completely self-sufficient. You understand that. You can never say, I am that I am. You have to say, I am because of something. But here, and it says, so here's what this passage says, Yahweh is my shepherd. <laughs> this one who needs no assistant. The biggest mistake you could ever make is by comparing God to something human. Bible actually says that's making like a graven image. You're limiting him. He's this limitless God. As high as he is above the grasshopper, he's that far above Satan. The opposite of Satan is not God. The opposite of Satan is Michael the archangel. God has no opposite. He governs this thing, and he says, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another one says, another translation says, Yahweh is my shepherd. I always have more than enough. John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life, and have it abundantly. Doesn't that sound good to you guys? That is the life without lack that's available to anyone who enters life in the kingdom. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what happens? All these things will be added to you. A life without lack in the kingdom. Here's what living in the kingdom means. It means that we are walking with him, that we're sensing him, we're acknowledging him in whatever we're doing. We're invoking him with our words. When we say in the name of Jesus, it's as if Jesus himself were enforcing that command. When it's done, you got, because this isn't like, you know, in the name of Jesus, like lemonade appeared. I'm not talking about like a genie. I'm talking about when you've been endorsed by him to do something. The Bible says this in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or in deed, in everything, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in the name of the Lord Jesus means to do it for him and from his resources. So you can literally do everything from the strength of another, and that another is a capital A. We're invoking him with our words. We're counting on his presence in everything we do. Picture this. I'm relying on him. I'm doing my best, but I'm not trusting my best. I'm acting, but he's acting with me. It's like power steering. Like, I'm turning the wheel, but it's not my hands that are actually turning the car. It's the power and strength of something else. You're at your work. You're going about doing good. You're doing the best that you know how, but you're not counting on that. You're saying, God, I'm doing this, but I'm counting on results that go beyond me. And Jesus just shocks everybody and says, anybody can bumble their way into this thing. All the wrong people begin. As soon as he makes that announcement of the openness of the kingdoms of heaven, Matthew chapter 8, a leper comes on in. Listen, lepers were not supposed to be coming. Lepers were supposed to be going. Jesus does something interesting. It says that he, the leper is like, hey, I, I don't know if you uh, can heal me. If you want to, you can, but it's kind of understood, I don't think you really want to. So what, what, why on earth would make this leper come to hear Jesus? Is he begins to hear this announcement of good news, and he's thinking, this even includes me. And so he comes there, and it says Jesus touches him, and he doesn't touch him like he's a hot stove. Ooh, leper, cooties, yuck. In the name of Jesus, in my name. He didn't say that. 
He touches him. I'm sure that Jesus gave him a hug, this thing that this guy really needed, and said, of course I'm willing. Be made whole. Right after that, a Roman centurion. These were the guys who were enslaving the Jews. Picture the Nazis in Germany enslaving and then coming. A Nazi guard hearing, there's good news for me. And this Roman centurion comes. He had a servant at home that he cared greatly about. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, him too. Go, your servant's made well this very hour. So what is the kingdom of God when you hear about this? We think about thrones and castles and Viking days and all those type of things. And that's just not going to be super helpful. When you think of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is God in action. It's a realm. It's a, it's a spiritual force. It's a dominion over which, put it this way, it's where his name is hallowed and his will is followed. It's where what God wants done is actually done. You have to understand, everywhere in the universe, his kingdom is being done perfectly, except for this little sphere called earth. It's the only place where his will is not done. And he's put it up to us. He gave us a commission and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion. He gave us this prayer. Um, Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of Christians are praying the opposite of this. They're praying the Star Trek prayer. Beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of this mess. So you can torch this place. Right? How many of you grew up under that theology? It's just going to get worse and worse, and just by the time we're about to die, God's going to eject us through the rapture. Jesus says, let's do something else. Let's make up there come down here. He actually has a heart to transform every sphere of society. Let's start with Columbus. I'm not just, I'm not just like, hey, let's just start with Columbus. Yeah, let's start with Columbus. Business. Home life. Schools. Government, arts and entertainment. I mean, just every realm he wants to touch. He didn't say make disciples in nations. He said make disciples of nations. God actually has a heart to disciple entire nations so they reflect his goodness. Think of the word kingdom, the king's dominion. It's God's reigning. Jesus came and announced it. This is basically Jesus' ministry. He announced that it was available And then he demonstrated the reality of that kingdom, and then he taught him about what just happened. Jesus came and actually ministered God. He didn't just talk about God. I could give you a lecture on, if I knew, had the knowledge, someone could give you a lecture on electricity for 10 hours, and you would come away with good information. But one second touching a live wire, you would have more information and more experience of that electricity than you did from the 10 hours. Jesus could have come and give sermon after sermon in 80,000-part series on kindness, and instead he was the live warrior of God, and when they touched him, they had a greater understanding about what Dad was like than from all the lectures. By the way, he actually expects you and me to do the same thing. I mean, it's interesting. If you just go through Matthew, Jesus is taking... He, actually expected the disciples, even though they had just been with him, to see what he was doing. I mean, Jesus was basically just living out the old covenant promises. He said, I'm the Lord, your healer. Jesus reaches into this invisible realm. He's just the only one who actually believed it at a level that it worked. So the disciples, the, uh, they're in a boat. There's this storm, and they're freaking out. Jesus gets up calms the storm, and he says, oh, wicked and perverse generation, how long am I going to be with you? Why didn't you guys calm the storm? Like, Jesus, man, these guys are new at this thing. He actually expects them to do it. They're, uh, 
you know, they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has got Peter, James, and John with them. They come down there. These, this, um, this father brings his epileptic son to the, to the disciples. They couldn't heal him. And uh, I was expecting Jesus to be like, hey, guys, thanks for trying. You know, I mean, I appreciate the faith. What's he say? Oh, wicked and perverse generation, how long am I going to put up with you guys? You guys understand, Jesus is not challenging you to do something impossible. He's inviting you into a lifestyle so that we become the same kind of live wire that he was. Well, Jim, how are we going to do that? We're going to step into this invisible realm, which we're going to spend some time talking about here. I want you to understand, Jesus was so prosperous that no matter what situation he faced, he ruled in that situation. Every sick person who came to him was healed without exception. There's never a time when he says, ha, you're right in the middle of an important lesson. Oh, um, the sickness is making you more like me. I always say this, sickness can't make you more like Jesus because Jesus wasn't sick. He never said, it's not my timing. You've got too many generational curses. You need to go soak for an hour. You need to fast first. You need to forgive. You need to tithe. You need to submit to authority. Those are all human rules. In the Old Testament, when there was a plague going throughout, throughout the land, Moses put up a serpent on a, on a pole, and everyone who looked at it was healed. Jesus said the same thing. He says, everyone who looks upon the cross, I will draw all men into me. Simply looking at Jesus brings them everything that they need. The demonized were set free. The dead were raised. Bill Johnson says, Jesus wrecked every funeral he ever went to, including his own. Shortage of food. I think we love to look for spiritual lessons in the multiplying of food. What was he doing? He was feeding hungry people. They'd been listening for days to his teaching, and they're faint with hunger. And you know, the, the stores were too far away, and they probably wouldn't have had enough food for 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men plus women and children. Conservative estimate says there's probably 20,000 people there. I want you guys to get this. Jesus actually expects us to come into need, to reach into the energy, the power of the kingdom of God, and be able to pull. I'm, I'm trying to expand it. Jesus was the most prosperous person who ever lived, but he wasn't God pretending to be man. He was actually a man who laid aside his divinity. He didn't stop being God, but he did not take advantage of any of that stuff. He led that life as a man and says, this is what's now available to you. He's breaking off the bread of his own life and feeding people with his experiences of this invisible realm. Interesting, we, were, uh, we did a, um, an outreach a couple years ago to a ministry called Better Way. And as they were, uh, you know, they had pots of stew and all this stuff, and way more people showed up than we brought food for. And so immediately it was like, okay, workers, you're not eating, and let's just pray. And so something interesting began to happen. Here's the email I got about this. So we start handing out food, and I noticed the crock pots weren't emptying at all. They were actually getting fuller. We started piling the food on the plates, and there was so much, pe- there was so much people had trouble carrying it to the table. Spaghetti, meatballs, peaches, salad, pie, and cookies. Can I get an amen? <laughs> there was a little over 90 people all together. This person's name and I went around to hand out cookies because there was so much extra. We ended up with extra pie, cookies, peaches, and two full crockpots. What happened? I don't know. But heaven invaded earth, and he just simply met need. I think we spiritualize this stuff too much. I mean, Jesus, his first miracle that revealed his glory was in John chapter 2. He goes to a wedding. Usually the wedding started on Wednesday. They would party through Friday. I told you, those Jews, they know how to do it, man. 
They're partying lots of wine. And so in the Jewish belief of that day, if you ran out of wine, it was a blot. It was a black mark on your marriage, and your marriage was doomed. Okay, so this was really a big deal. So Jesus comes, and, you know, it wasn't like they send out, you know, you know, embossed invitations. It was kind of like everyone in the village was invited, and they would come and go as they pleased. And so it was hard to know how much wine to buy. And so Jesus, uh, you, know, you know the miracle, they run out of wine, and his mom comes to him and says, uh, and I love Jesus' response, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come, which I use that line on my wife all the time. She's like, can you do something on the art? I'm like, woman, my time has not yet come. I'm like, it's scripture. So Jesus, so uh, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, says, do whatever he tells you to do. So he goes, he gets these ceremonial jars, that, uh, six jars containing 30 to 50 gallons of water. Jesus is about to make 300 gallons of wine. And as you guys know, it was the best wine, better than the stuff that happened before. What was happening here? Jesus was friends with these people who were about to be embarrassed. It wasn't a life and death situation. He literally cared about their embarrassment. He wanted to bless their marriage, and so he performs this miracle. You see, when we can spiritualize and get some great lessons, it was just a guy trying to keep his friends from being embarrassed. The kingdom of heaven actually had access and resource and concern for that little situation. Natural disasters. He calms the storm with three words. Peace, be still. Shut up, storm. Sit down. Taxes to the Roman Empire. He pulls it out of a fish's mouth. Running out of wine. Already did that one. We're storing an outcast of society. Lepers, go show yourself to the priest. People trying to harm him before his appointed time. Says, you know, I mean, Jesus, he's rocking and rolling. He's performing miracles in Luke chapter 4. It's his first sermon. And all of a sudden, people are like, hold on. Are you saying that you're the Messiah? And they go to try to run him off of a cliff. And it says, Jesus, he just parts the way and walks out through him and says, how you like me now? Well, he didn't actually say that part. That's what I would have said. I mean, I'm talking, they're coming to him with trick questions. He exposes their hearts with his wisdom. Forgiveness for those who torture and crucify him, deny him, betray him. He's fearless in the face of powerful rulers. I mean, they have their life in his hand, and he's just able to stand there calm. Why? Because he was so prosperous on the inside. He had such complete trust in his shepherd that he had everything he needed. I want you guys to understand that these aren't just like cute phrases that we put the words to music to. This is a heart-racing, pulse-pounding reality. No matter what situation you're in, Jesus is saying, I'm the door into this kind of life. You don't have to be more than you are. You don't have to do something extra. Just who you are. Once you're born again, you've entered through that door, and now you can begin to live in this kingdom. There's never a scripture that says, and Jesus was worried. And Jesus was so stressed out he couldn't sleep. And they stumped Jesus, and he didn't know what to say, and he went away in shame. There's never a verse that says that. Every situation, he was so prosperous. He so lived out of the resources of the heavens. Listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23. For all things are yours. I don't normally have people repeat this, but say all things. Whether Paulus or Paul, Apollo, Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, in other words, it doesn't matter who your spiritual leader is, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or life or death or the present future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If you belong to Christ, all things are yours. The very things Jesus had access to, you have access to. Stephen De Silva's got a great quote here. He says, The central message of prosperity is this. 
In the kingdom, there was always enough because God is without limit, and Christ has declared us worthy to receive all that is his as sons and daughters. It is this precious relationship with him that determines our worth and what we deserve. That is the kingdom of God. It's where what God's will wants done is actually done there. This is why a lot of people feel very close to God in nature. It's because he's the one who's arranged it like that, and you're coming into a realm of his kingdom. But like I said, there is one little aspect um, of God's creation that is not under his will, and that's called the earthly kingdom. And what happens is you and I, we also have a kingdom. I'm not sure if you realize that. The kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's where what you want done is actually done. So women, if you were to look in your purses, that's a part of your kingdom. You're the one who put it there, right? Unless your kids have gotten it messed it up, but let's not talk about that. Um, probably your home, the way it's decorated, is part of your kingdom. You're the one who put those pictures on the wall. Guys, what's in your tool shed? Those of you who love to read the bookshelves. I'm just saying, this is a microcosm where you're actually wanting done. This is why kids, they don't want you to dress them when they get to a certain age. They want to do it. Why? They're expressing their kingdom. They're expressing their will over their body. So here's where it gets powerful, is when we recognize, I've got this kingdom, but if I take my kingdom and I submit it to his kingdom, I become who I always was supposed to be, and I get to live on a different power. You guys understand that? When you're born again, it does not necessarily mean that you're living out of another power. God's kingdom is so subtle, you can miss it. It's so subtle, you actually have to seek it in order to find it. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is hidden. It will not run over you, at least for now. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And here's God's problem, is if he's any more obvious, he would wipe out in the entire creation. We have to keep the sun about 93 million miles away from us so it doesn't destroy us. God's energy is way more powerful than the sun. Are you guys getting this? That's God's problem. It's kind of like, you know, you've got an atomic bomb, but then somehow they're able to harness it into atomic energy so that it comes through this roof, into these wires, and into these lights, and animates everything. Here, God is greater than atomic energy, and somehow he's able to come in the person of Jesus and animate and percolate us with the life of God, but we've got to seek it. You're like, oh man, I'm, I'm gonna, it's going to be really hard. Um, it's not. But you're going to have to seek at it with all your heart. You're going to have to desire him and his kingdom more than you and your kingdom. Jesus said things like this. He says, if you don't hate your father and mother, hey, even your own life, you cannot be my follower. Here's the implications. If you think that there's something more important than following me in this life that I've come to be available to, make available to you, then you're going to get distracted and you'll never seek me to find me. The promise is you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29, 13. If I do it half-heartedly, there's no promise of finding and half-hearted seeking. See, if I get too absorbed in my little kingdom and too impressed with my abilities and my intellect and my training and this and that, then God is fine to allow us to live in the strength of our little kingdom. He's never going to come and crash your party. He may come crashing in your life in powerful ways, but not when it's uninvited. There's got to be something in the heart that, that doesn't. So what does it look like to seek the kingdom? Um, has anyone here ever lost the remote control to their television set? What do you do? You look for it everywhere. It becomes the top priority of your life in that moment. You're turning over cushions. You're looking over everything, right? That's what it looks like to seek the kingdom of God. It becomes the top priority of your life, and you're looking for him everywhere. On a moment-by-moment -moment basis, I'm aware of him. 
I'm sensing him. I'm listening for him. And when I act, I'm counting on him to act with me. One, uh, one way that I kind of check myself to see if I'm in the kingdom, I ask this question, now are you doing this? And who are you trusting? See, God wants to be involved in your recreation, in your eating, in your workplace, in your romance, every area of your life he wants to be involved. Every area of your life where you'll seek him, you will find him. That's really good news, gang. So just, I mean, if you're taking notes, here's just one quick thing. Now, are you doing this? And in whom am I trusting? Just as you're going throughout your day, and I find that there's large portions of the day where I'm just doing stuff in the strength of my own kingdom. I give it my best, but I'm not trusting my best. Just real quickly here, Jesus gives us a couple of baby steps into the kingdom. It's really interesting. So he says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Make it your top priority. Look for the kingdom of God everywhere. Then the, the, That invisible realm is going to flood you with everything you need. But right before that, in the same chapter, he tells you some baby steps into the kingdom. So here they are. And, uh, he, he talks about, um, he talks about uh, giving, praying, and fasting. Everyone say fasting. I didn't say it. The Bible says it here, all right? These baby steps into the kingdom are chances for you to say, am I going to make it all about me and my kingdom? Or am I going to seek his kingdom? The point of seeking the kingdom is not to prove yourself worthy. When you seek it, you begin to, by experience, recognize this thing's real. This thing's actually working in my life. The Bible does not say the truth will set you free. The Bible says, if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, then you will know the truth. You will know it by experience. Here's the picture. I'm putting God's word into practice. I'm doing what I know to be right. He's acting with me, and I'm seeing this is really real. And the truth of that begins to set me free. So the point of seeking the kingdom is I actually begin to interact with it. It's coming into my life, and I'm like, wow, this thing is real, and I begin to get a confidence. What am I doing? I'm stepping into the kingdom, and I'm living in the kingdom. Are we okay? Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. One of the main things that's going to pull you out of the influence of the kingdom of heaven is if you begin to do things that so that other people will think you're great. Here's the truth I know, gang. Most people don't want to be great. They just want to be known as great. They want everyone to go, man, you're amazing. Wow, those gifts. Oh, you were the one who did that testimony? That's fabulous. Most people don't want to be great. They want to be known as great. Great people will do things for an audience of one. And God's the one who gives them promotion. And so if you're doing it to be seen by other people, God will step back and say, well, hey, there's your reward. The kingdom can't get involved in that process. And so he gives these examples in Matthew 6, verse 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. Can you just imagine this scene? I mean, it's like... Um, you know, some, you know, Joe Rich man gets up to give, and he's got his little lackeys. Oh, wow, someone's, a, oh, clank, clank, big offering. Wow. Thank goodness we don't do that today with plaques on the walls of hospitals and all that stuff. They got the reward. Truly I say to you, they've received the reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. When your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, it's hard to clap for yourself. So that your giving may be in secret, and then your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's happening here? 
is there's this invisible realm that's governed by a father who's watching you. And as you begin to give in the right way, there begins to be a flow into your life and you begin to recognize the reality of the kingdom. I'm being rewarded from a father of another realm. The point of seeking isn't to go, I'm seeking. Oh, I'm trying so hard. I'm so desperate. Oh, look at me. I'm hungry. The point of seeking is that you actually begin to enter into the reality of this thing. The point is that it actually works for you. I remember when uh, the Lord began teaching Mary and I this early on in our marriage. We were broke. And, um, and, so, we're, and so in order to graduate from seminary, so I had, I had done a kind of an accelerated program in seminary, kind of taking double the full load throughout the whole thing. And in order to graduate, I needed $4,000. And so Mary and I decided, you know what? Let's not broadcast this need. Let's, instead of doing GoFundMe, we'll do GodFundMe. Don't hate me for that comment, okay? And so we, uh, we didn't broadcast our need, and we just said, God, you're the one who called us to this thing. We need this money to graduate. And within three days, we had $4,030. I don't know what the extra 30 is for. Maybe you just wanted us to take out, go out to dinner or something. I don't know. But $4,030 came in from three different sources. One was from someone I hadn't talked to in over a decade. I don't even know how they found our address. I mean, we were living in Missouri. We, you know, we'd moved in a completely different place. And uh, one was from a relative that I've maybe talked to three times, and the other one was, uh, was from an, another person that we knew. And so the money came in over a period of time. What did we learn in that thing? Is that what we do in secret, God is going to reward. We can actually trust this realm. And so over, over our life, we found over and over again that, man, nobody else knows about this need, but there's someone who's watching it in secret, and he wants to flow that into your life. He goes on, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't think you're going to be heard because of all your words. And um, when you pray, you're actually learning that I'm co-laboring with God and I'm watching the effects of this invisible realm come into the situation and far surpass anything that humanity could do. The joy of prayer is not that you prayed a whole bunch. Oh, I prayed for an hour today. Great. Um, The joy of prayer is an answered prayer. Jesus said, um, uh, pray in my name that I may answer you and your joy may be complete. So the, the joy is not that I made it. Just a couple quick things about prayer. Um, one, pray until you actually pray. The greatest hindrance to prayer, the greatest obstacle in my life and your life to prayer is getting past ourselves. I'm not sure if you've ever like tried to pray in tongues for more than like a minute, you know, but if you try to go like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, you're going to find that uh, you're getting in the way. And so I, I, w- I was actually doing this yesterday and it took me about 10 minutes to stop focusing on the fact that I was praying in tongues and that these words sounded weird and that it was intellectually offensive to my mind. And I, after about 10 minutes, I was actually praying. See, when you're talking with someone, you're not like, hey, I'm talking to someone right now. We're having a conversation. And um, boy, how long has this conversation been going on? I wonder if we could keep this conversation up for 20 minutes. But you know what I'm saying? But sometimes when we pray, we've got that going on. What words should I use here? And, um, you know, I mean, are these prayers even getting above the ceiling? I don't even know what I'm saying here. So you got to get past that barrier, and, when, and once you do, it, it can actually become glorious. It doesn't feel like work. And then he gives the example of fasting. Um, when you fast, don't, you know, notice, it's not if somebody finds out. It's if you're doing it so that somebody finds out, you get no reward. So if you're fasting, someone finds out you're fasting, and you're like, oh, I lost my reward. No, 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 that's not what it is. But if the whole point was so you could go, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fasting today. Yeah, it's, uh, we're really hungry for the, you know, you got your reward. Okay, if that's what if that's is the motivation for it. But if somebody just happens to find out because you're you know you've lost 
bunch of weight, <laughs> and you got ketosis, and your breath is bad, then, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to figure out. One last quick thing here. Temptations are your greatest opportunity to know the kingdom. You guys don't believe me on that one. We're going to have to work on that one here. Temptations are the greatest opportunity to know the kingdom. Whenever you're temptation to sin, to worry, to panic, to take matters into your own hands, the Bible says something interesting. Count it all joy whenever you face trials or temptations. It's actually the same word. There are many kinds. Why? Because God wants to add something to your life, not trying to take something away from your life, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in no good thing. If you're running your own kingdom yourself, you're not going to be able to do that. The temptation to sin is always a temptation to not trust God and to trust in your own resources. Take matters into your own hands. If you turn your back on God, you're never going to see him acting. So in your workplace, you're not doing it in your own. You understand that. You're working, remember, from his resources for him. The kingdom of God is not in word, but it's in power. Jesus, the most prosperous person who ever lived, he came with this announcement, is you can live on a holy power that's not your own. <laughs> there we go. All right. It's almost done. Get it out. There it is. All right. There it is. It's okay. We, haven't we all had those kind of days? We've just gotten better at faking it as adults. But then there's sometimes you just want to be like, ah. You're at work and you're having a bad day and you got to keep it together. So you know what? Little kids, they can't hide it. Jesus is like, be more like them. So it's okay. I want to close with this thought. To me, the greatest shame, in, and so I, I've been teaching on finances for a bunch of weeks here, the greatest shame would be if we you know, went through these sessions, listened to the things, did the activations, but we never actually met Jesus as our provider. We've learned some principles. Maybe our mind's thinking differently, and my hopes and my expectations are a little bit higher. None of that matters if you are not personally saying, Jesus you are the king over this kingdom. You are the most prosperous person who ever lived. It is the opportunity of a lifetime for me to learn from you how to live in this realm. That's what discipleship is. Nowhere in the Bible did a person ever have a disciple. I'm a disciple of Jim. I'm a disciple of this person. They were always disciples of Jesus. And you're discipling someone to the point you're helping them get personally connected to the vine so that Jesus himself is teaching them personally how to live in the kingdom. And to me, gang, we have to get this thing right where we recognize I've received him as Savior. Many of you have received Jesus as healer, but how do I receive him as provider? How do I actually say, Jesus, I am trusting you for provision, for wisdom, for strength, for finances, for area of area of life. And that is, that is the pearl of great price. And when you recognize that that's more valuable than anything else I could ever get, then you qualify yourself to step into the kingdom. Here's what I want to do. I want to end with this parable. I want you guys to close your eyes. And I want to get, it gives you a vision of what the abundance of the kingdom is like. And then I'm just going to have you, we're going to pray a prayer where it's, uh, you, hopefully this is going to well up a desire in your heart so that you receive him as provider. You guys ready? Imagine a huge, oh, by the way, this is from uh, Craig Hill. Imagine a huge snowfield in the mountains but with a virtually infinite supply of water. There were three rivers emanating from the snowfield. On the first river lives a man whose experience of life is such that he never quite had enough water. His life experience has confirmed this to him. So what does he do with the water coming down the river? 
He builds a dam in the river. He collects all the water that he possibly can. No water is ever, ever able to flow downstream for others to use. This man's view of water only includes that which is available to him in his lake. Therefore, he must conserve water. He must be very careful because there's never really enough coming down for him. No water is ever available to flow downstream for others. If the flow of water is ever increased in this river, he will simply store it and increase the size of his lake. His perception is that the bigger the lake he has, the more secure he is for the future. Now there's a second river that flows down from the snowfield. The man who lives along this river has life experience that tells him there's usually plenty of water to meet his needs, so there's no need to build a dam in the river. However, there's never quite enough water to really meet all of his desires for water usage. So he uses all the water he can, and he lets a very small amount flow downstream for others to use. However, most of the water coming down the river is consumed by his ever-expanding desires. So not much is left to flow downstream. This man's view of water is that there's more water available upstream, but its volume and rate of flow is quite limited. Therefore, all he, can, he uses all he can as it flows down through his property. If the flow of water is increased in this river, this family will inevitably find new uses for the water. This man will build a swimming pool for his children. If the water flow still increases, he'll build a water park and install a series of beautiful fountains on his property. No matter how much water comes down the river, there's never enough to really do everything he would like to do with the water. But then there's a third river, and a man who also lives on this river. His experience of life is that there's so much water up there in that snowfield that no one could ever use up all the water coming down the river. As a result of his understanding, this man begins digging canals to outlawing areas to help water, water the fields of others who don't live near a river. He empties as much water as he can out through the canals he has dug, and there still seems to be more water flowing down the river than he can possibly use. So most of it still flows downstream for others to use. Each year, this man digs a few new canals out to his neighbors who need water. And the next year, he has a plan to be, build another three canals. And the following year, he's hoping to dig five new canals that go even further from this river. It seems like no matter how many canals he digs, there's just more water that keeps coming down his river. As a matter of fact, this man is thinking all the time about how he can hire some more men with bulldozers to dig canals faster to get the water out to all these other farms that are far from the river. This man's experience of life is that you, can't just use, you just can't use up all the water that's coming down this river. If the flow of water is increased in this river, the man living along this river will simply dig more canals to get more and more water out to help the others. Just as we're, as we're uh, getting ready to close here, if you desire to manage more of God's resources as a steward, then you're going to have to allow God to change you on the inside. You first need to learn to be faithful over what you've been given to manage now. But the faster you can learn to build canals and channel resources into the kingdom, the faster you qualify yourself to handle more resources. So here's what I want to do, just between you and God, whatever this looks like, is just tell him your... <clears throat> Tell him what river you've been living on and what river you desire to be living on. Let's just start with that. Just take a moment. God, I can, maybe you've been kind of in between a couple of the rivers. It's okay. This isn't time to feel guilty, but I want you to just to get a vision. God, this is the river I want to live on. If it's river number three, just begin to let that desire well up in your heart. Just begin to talk to him about it right there in your seat.
just in your heart, just express, Holy Spirit, I recognize Jesus, you are the provider. Yahweh is my shepherd. It's interesting, Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus, just as we've received you as Savior, helpless dependence, there's nothing we could do, just count on your goodness. Just as we've received you as healer, Lord, we now recognize you as our provider. God, you have an abundance for every situation. So Lord, I just lay down small thinking. I lay down river number one and river number two thinking. And Lord, I just recognize that I've stepped into a kingdom of the third river where there is more than enough for every situation. So Holy Spirit, this week, help me to step into the kingdom and stay there, (laughs) to seek you, to look for you everywhere, to count on you, to sense you, to invoke your name, to rely on you, to put my confidence in you on a moment-by-moment basis, and to experience the kingdom, Lord, to know the reality of it, not just the theory of it. So Lord, I bless each person in here with a grace to experience the reality of the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. Bless you guys. Stay.